my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not work or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be here. It's good to be back uh, with this church body at the very least, but also back in a brand new church building. It's really exciting for us to see. When we started attending Resurrection, I think we were in the fire room at the Classic Center upstairs with some random firemen poles running through the middle of the congregation. Uh, it was tempting to slide up and down, obviously, with kids and all that. And, and then we got to see the way that Christ worked in and through the body of resurrection and the people of Athens over the course of a lot of different transitions. So it's really exciting to be here with my family, see so many familiar faces. Um, many of you already know this, but let me just tell everyone else on the front end. I, I am an emotional guy. I feel things. Okay, so if I start tearing up and or crying at some point, uh, don't take it personally. Um, it happens, okay? So I just want to get that out of the way on the front end so that when it happens, you're like, okay, we, he warned us. Um, it, it's about that time of the year right now. I don't know if you guys feel like this. It's about that time of the year where some of your New Year's resolutions start to fall by the wayside. We don't have to do a show of hands, but my guess is that many of us in here are like driven New Year's resolution type people. And that's great. I, I think of myself as a a driven, motivated person, but I've learned that I can't be a New Year's resolution guy because I'll make it about a month or a month and a half, and then it, it falls off. Uh, no matter how you feel about New Year's resolutions, my guess is that none of you in this room came into the year 2024 thinking to themselves, my goal for 2024 is to feel less competent at what I do, is to feel weaker, and to be less than I am right now. M my hunch is that your human nature, your instinct is not, I want to dig down as deep as I can into dependence on the Lord so that I can experience fullness of life. That's just my guess. I don't know all of your hearts, but uh, th that's, that's sort of my hunch. Now, this Lenten season and the way that I uh, think Psalm 28 is speaking to us here is showing us and reminding us that fullness of life is actually found not in our resiliency and independence, our self-sufficiency and independence, but fullness of life and true joy are actually found in dependence on the Lord. That's what we see here in the text of Psalm 28 that Karen already read for us, and that's what we're going to look at. So there's two things in Psalm 28 that David is doing here, two sort of actions he's taking. The first thing is he's fighting the lie of independence. 
He's fighting the lie of independence. And then what he's doing to fight that lie is he's finding life in dependence. So there's this double move. He's fighting against a lie in life. And it's all focused on what dependence looks like and means for the believer. Now, let me, uh, well, I guess the pastor's already read. Typically, I would read it and then sort of dive into it, but let's just go ahead and dive into it because it's already been read. All right, so the catalyst for David's prayer here. Look at the catalyst. He, he jumps right off the bat. He, he jumps in and he's saying, Lord, uh, I'm crying out to you because I know that if I don't cry out to you and if you don't hear and respond, he, it's sort of vague, but he's making it clear like, I have no hope. My life is going to become like those who go down to the pits. Uh, I'm going to cry for you for help so that I don't get dragged off with the wicked. So the catalyst for David's crying out, for David's prayer here in Psalm 28, is that there's a group of people who clearly are antagonistic toward him. There's a group of people that he does not want to fall prey to and that he doesn't want to become like. And the way that he describes this group of people is really intriguing. He describes them as those who have no regard for the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. Now, that's a really intriguing phrase that coincides with what he will also describe as wickedness and evil. So these two things we see in this prayer categorize those who who, uh, are independent from the life of God. The fundamental problem, sort of the issue that's underlying this whole issue is that there are some people out there in the world who are against David because they think that they can live completely independent from, completely detached, completely untethered from God himself. These people have no regard for the work of the Lord. These people do not think that God has anything to tell them about the way that they live their life, about how to think, about how to interact with others. And what happens is that the further they remove themselves from the Lord, the more independent and autonomous they make themselves, the more their works start to become wicked. The more they start to become disintegrated. It's a really intriguing thing here. Look at verse 3. He talks about one of the characteristics of these types of people is that they say one thing and do another. They, they live a double life. They live a lie. In so many casting yourself off from the Lord, saying that you are completely independent of the Lord, it makes you a disintegrated person. It makes everything start to fall apart. Now, this is an incredibly hard lie for us in today's world to combat. In today's world, We are all about the concept of independence and autonomy. Just a few examples of why it's so hard today. I broke it down into three S's. Uh, The first is satisfaction. Everything in the world today tells you and wants to convince you that everything else around you exists for your ultimate satisfaction. So when we combat that lie, we say, you know what? No, the people around me do not exist solely to make me happy, to fulfill my desires. The gifts that you've given me are not simply to make me feel filled up on the thing in itself. The lie of independence is so strong in today's world because we're trying to be told that it's our own satisfaction. Another reason that it's really hard is because we're obsessed with the concept of self-sufficiency. Again, think about your iPhone, 
Think about just the, the ways that you can set your life up to make it so that you don't have to rely on anyone else around you in order to like make your life happen. One of the sort of, uh, one of, one of the peak achievements that you can make is automating everything, is like integrating everything so that you don't have to ask your spouse for help. You don't have to ask your friends for help. You don't have to ask your parents for help. And that's a lie. And what's funny is that oftentimes the things that we cling to, thinking that they actually give us self-sufficiency, end up enslaving us just to a lesser idol. So if we give our lives to the, uh, to the optimization that the iPhone can bring, guess what? You're completely contingent on that thing functioning perfectly for you all the time. So even this lie is self-defeating. And the third thing that we see here is, or I guess in our own lives, is the, uh, the, the desire for success. We're, we're in a college town here in Athens, so there's a whole lot about like getting really good grades. It was a funny aside on our small group with my high school guys. Uh, this past week, we were talking about college stuff and just some of the pressures that they feel. They're juniors now, so they're thinking about colleges. And they asked, uh, you know, oh, Joel, what college do you go to? They all know, but they forget because they're high school guys. And I said, University of Georgia. And they were like, oh, is that hard to get into? And I said, I think so now. And then, uh, and then, and then they looked it up, and they were like, the, the acceptance rate is 40%? No way. And I was like, yeah, look, don't think of, like, that was a decade or plus ago, okay? Like, don't think that I am this, like, wildly UGA-driven, successful guy. But they're so drawn to, and we in our heart of hearts are so drawn to the idea of success and competency and productivity that we think to ourselves, you know what, this is what life is all about. Independence, self-sufficiency, striving. That's where we're going to find life. That's where we're going to find satisfaction. What becomes really hard is when the small truths about independence seep into the Christian life. So we got to give independence some credit in some ways because for all of you parents in here right now, uh, you are thinking to yourself, well, my kids better become independent at some point. They better not be living in my house forever, right? Like we want kids to become independent. We want our kids to get out of diapers and be able to uh, use the bathroom by themselves. There is an aspect to which we say, yes, independence is a good goal as long as we have it in the right place. But what can happen, unfortunately, in the Christian life is we make independence and self-sufficiency the cornerstone of the Christian life to the point to where we model in our older age that what growing up into maturity looks like is growing out of dependence on God. And that's wrong. What we actually need to show the next generation is that growing up and becoming more mature doesn't mean that you have to stop and stop confessing your sins and stop leaning on the body of Christ for support. What growing up in the Christian life means and looks like is growing up into a consistent dependence on the Lord more and more every day. So David here is fighting against this lie of independence, and he is finding life in dependence. Again, right off the bat, we see, even in his words, the way that he is 
crying out to the Lord and sort of the action that he describes himself as taking in his prayer. He describes it as uh, crying out for help, lifting up his hands towards the Lord's most holy sanctuary. I like soldier movies because I like to think that in another life, if I didn't have um, terrible eyes and uh, poor work ethic, I could have been like a marine seal or something. I like soldier movies, and I especially like the movies where, like, Lone Survivor, oh boy, you, you put me in a Lone Survivor situation, and I think to myself, yep, that's, I can, I want to do that. All right, but th- there are these soldier movies, or maybe these, like, old Western movies, where the main character, I don't know, English majors, protagonist, who knows, where the main character at some point gets stranded, like, after a fight in the middle of the desert. Okay, and then they wake up and they realize, like, I'm all alone and just got the, like, the sounds and all that. And they're all discombobulated. And they look up and they realize, okay, I, I'm out here alone. And what they have to do is they have to stumble through the desert and crawl through the desert until they find, like, the city of refuge. Or until they find, like, the truck that's passing by or the horse that's coming up. Now, in that moment, none of us would think to ourselves, like, What are you doing stretching your hand out to that town? No, we're thinking to ourselves, yes, that's the only thing that's going to save you. You have to get there. Do whatever it takes. So they're stumbling and then they're crawling and then they start to pass out and they reach their hand out and they say, oh, like that's what they need to get to because they know that if they don't get to the source of life, they have absolutely no hope. Ashamed about their dependence, they're not like, crawling and being like, hey, I know I seem weak and this isn't very manly, but like I've been stranded for days. Could I have some water? No, they are desperate to get to the only source of life that they know is there. And in the same way, David here is like a man stumbling through life, stumbling through the wilderness, and he knows on the horizon, the only thing that can save him is the presence of the Lord himself. He's stretching out his hands towards the most holy temple. He's reaching out and saying, I need this more than anything else in the whole world. Now, when I was originally prepping this sermon, I I had this really dangerous application question that I'll ask you as well. What is it that we literally reach for in the moments where we feel like we need help? What is it that you instinctively pull out of your pocket because you need just a moment of relief? What is it that you gravitate towards in your house? Is it the pantry or the refrigerator? Guilty. Is it the remote? What is it that you gravitate towards and that you just your hands for in order to try and find that relief that only the Lord himself can bring? David is highlighting here what the New Testament is going to call childlikeness. Now, childlikeness is not immaturity, Childlikeness is not pettiness. Childlikeness is not clumsy. It's not naive. It's radical dependence. So when we see David here modeling radical dependence, we're going to hear Jesus say that's what it's like to be childlike. It's to be so dependent and confident in the only thing that you know can bring strength that you unashamedly cry out for help. Now, a great model of this that many of y'all know, obviously, are our own children. 
And one of the clearest examples that I had of this was over Christmas break, we were with my family in the mountains, and we decided one day to go on a hike. Uh, and the trail only went so far, so we just kind of had to like go up to the trail, and then there was more mountains, so we said, you know what, we're just going to go straight up the mountain, just see what happens. And this whole time, we thought, you know what would be a good idea? is bring in our kids, because nothing says a good hike like a two-and-a-half-year-old strapped to your chest. So, so I'm carrying the ergo. Maddie is carrying the little like primitive wrap, all this with Barrett. So I have Jack, our two-and-a-half-year-old. She has Barrett, and we're traipsing up this mountain. We're crunching through leaves, trying not to fall. We get to the top. Jack has right, done the hike with us. We set him down. He plays for a second. We hike back down all the way to the bottom, and we finally get down to the bottom, and I'm like, okay, I, I, I can put my son down now. We're on solid ground. So there's a, you know, a long driveway. It's real flat, and then it goes way up the hill to the house that we're staying at. And Jack walks for a second, and we're walking up the driveway, and then all of a sudden he realizes, like, uh-oh, we got to get up there. And he turns, and he looks, and then he just looks at me, and he goes, Daddy, carry me, carry me, carry me. And in that moment, like, my flesh wanted to be like, dude, do you have no shame? Like, be strong. Come on. Like, you can do it. I just carried you all the way up. You're finally on solid ground. It's pavement. You've got this, bud. But in that moment, my son wasn't feeling shame or embarrassment because he wanted his father to carry him. He was feeling confidence. He was feeling relief and rest, knowing that if I turn to my father and ask him, cry out to him to carry me, he will do it. David here is asking, he's pleading with the Lord to be spared of his life, to be spared suffering, to receive mercy, to not be cast out and pulled down into the pit. He's asking the Lord, pleading with the Lord, Lord, please hear me. Please carry me. Please respond. And the good news is that the Lord does respond. Look at verses 6 through 9 here. I love the way that this all comes together at the end. When the Lord hears David's pleas for mercy, he doesn't make fun of him. He doesn't belittle him. He doesn't critique him. He responds by becoming his salvation. David cries out for mercy and salvation. He cries out for strength. And then the response here, he says, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped. The Lord is the strength of his refuge of his anointed. He responds by becoming strength and salvation himself. Now, this is where the beautiful mystery of the gospel is made so clear. Because in this moment, even though David might not have known why and how he was able to receive mercy, God knew. God knew I can respond to David's pleas for mercy because someday I will send my son who will cry out for the same mercy, the same relief that David is asking for. In in his moment of despair on the cross, in the moment where he knew he needed the strength of his father the most, he cries out to the Lord, But God is silent. 
Christ experiences all of the things that David was asking for relief for. All of the things that David was afraid he was going to have to take on himself, Christ takes on himself. Christ, all that is perfect and blameless, is treated like one of the wicked. He is identified as one who is evil. He receives the punishment. He is cast out and torn down in the way that only the wicked ought to be. And he does that so that his people might receive mercy. That's the beautiful mystery of the gospel that we see foreshadowed here in Psalm 28. So let's do some applications. How might this start to apply and land for all of us? Number one, you might need a preliminary step. So the very, very first step uh, before actually crying out, if, if you don't know what you need to be crying out for, if you don't know sort of where your blind spots are, where you're trying to function self-sufficiently and independently, ask someone that you trust and know who's close to you. Ask them, say, what are some areas that God might want to manifest his goodness and mercy towards me so that I can experience life in dependence on him? Second step, cry out. Once you realize the ways that you need the mercy of the Lord, that you need the Lord to become your strength and your salvation, don't wait, don't think, okay, well, I know I should be asking for this, but God doesn't want to hear it. I don't want to be needy. I don't want to bug him. No, be like the psalmist. Be like Jesus himself and cry out to the Lord. Ask him to give you the humility to actually believe that you need his help. Next, wait. Be still. Don't make dependence on the Lord another task that you think you have to master. Don't make crying out something for you to check off your success competency list. Instead, cry out to the Lord and then slow down and pray for patient endurance. Wait on the Lord. Be still and know that He is God. Now I know in this room, that many of you have been crying out and waiting for a long time. Many of you have understood known the gravity of your situation and known what it looks like to be completely dependent on the Lord, and you've been crying out and waiting. And the Lord needs you to know today that you're not in the wrong place. You're not where you're not supposed to be. You are where you're supposed to be. The Lord wants to meet you in the waiting. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you there forever. It may take a long time. You may have to endure more and more, but he will respond. That leads us to the next application point. Listen. In the midst of the waiting, listen and hear the promises of the Lord for his people. Understand that what he says will be true is actually true. In the waiting, listen to the promises that he is your strength and shield. He is your salvation. He is your shepherd who both cares for you and wants to carry you. And then trust. Look at verse 7. David says, In him trusts and I am helped. 
All of this has to land on David's heart in such a way that he clings to and believes these promises. You can't just say, okay, well, the promises are are true in a vacuum. They're true for other people. They have to be received and rested upon in our own hearts by faith. Trust in him. And then finally, worship. Again here, we see David pour out exultations towards the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord in verse 7. Once he realizes and recognizes that the Lord not only hears, but responds by becoming our strength and our shield, by becoming our salvation, David knows that the right response, the only response that makes sense is for him to turn back to the Lord and praise him to pour out his praises and his thanks for the ways that the Lord has acted. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful passage that shows us how life independence upon the Lord is the only thing, the thing that we were made for, and it's the only way that our hearts will ever find the true satisfaction, the true fulfillment that we're looking for. Don't run away from God. Don't cast Him away, but instead lean upon Him. Lean into Him in the midst of your weaknesses, in the midst of your dependence, and know that He will respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you gave David these words thousands of years ago and that they hold true today. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful fulfillment of all of these things that we see in the work and the person of Christ Jesus. I pray that as we continue to worship you and draw near to you today, this morning, that we would trust you more that we would know how sweet it is to trust in you and to cling to your words, to trust upon your promises, to know that you are God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.